Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 17. In the previous episode, I shared my surprisingly difficult experience trying to source red-ripe coffee cherry. It was surprisingly difficult to pay the farmers more for a different quality than they were used to picking because of the established system, a system that developed over decades as a response to chronically low coffee prices. It's important for me to share this with you because I don't believe enough of us who enjoy drinking coffee realize how fragile our coffee supply actually is. Coffee is such a staple in our daily lives that I believe we simultaneously revere it for making our mornings more enjoyable and also take it for granted. For example, many businesses offer free coffee, free coffee refills, free coffee with food. If you look around hotels and restaurants and gatherings, free coffee is a sign you will see often. We expect that there will always be coffee. It seems so abundant that there is a real disconnect between the effort it takes to get that cup into our hands and what we are willing to pay for that work. Many of us would be turned off by a $5 cup of coffee, but have also likely paid $15 to $20 for a glass of wine. If you listen to the previous episode, the problem can seem very specific to the challenges faced at that scale with those companies in that country. And while it was specific, the challenges are not unique. So today, I'm going to share two other instances with companies of different sizes and structures, and both of those will be in two different countries. The first is another incident that wouldn't have been brought to my attention if it wasn't for the presence of cameras on a coffee farm. A client hired me to help them understand how they could use fermentation to improve their coffee quality. A big difference was that they owned some of the farms and they also had a mill on their property. However, the mill was oversized for their farms, so they also bought cherry or parchment from their neighbors. Another difference from the last example was how much smaller this client was. For example, instead of 300 farmers, they worked with around 30. A third difference was they didn't have a single large buyer for all of their coffee. They had several roasters as buyers and therefore wanted to have a diverse offering for their clients. They needed to understand how fermentation could help them to create a consistent, differentiated batch instead of the more common method of putting coffee in a tank and relying on luck that it would have a positive result and that they would be able to find a home for that coffee. Like I mentioned, in addition to buying coffee cherries, they sometimes also purchased parchment because a few neighbors had enough manual equipment to process their own bags of coffee. My client wanted me to share the training I was giving them with their neighbors so that they could improve the quality throughout the entire area. If more of the area had similar training, it would help bring up the uniformity of the coffee and therefore the quality. This was a rare way for me to work. I generally avoid working in a group setting. I usually work one-on-one -on -one with my clients, but this was a unique opportunity for me to reach farmers that would never have the means to hire me themselves. The goal was to have several farmers join, the majority of them women, and the invitation was also extended to a co-op in a neighboring country. That group drove eight hours to come process coffee with me and ask questions. The planning for this week of training took several months. I used Skype and WhatsApp to virtually coach them through some preliminary trials so that they could become more familiar with yeast and we could get the most out of our visit together when I finally arrived. 
For the week of my visit, we expected to have around 20 farmers present. Unfortunately, the week before my arrival, an important member of the community passed away and we lost half of the group of women that was supposed to show up because they were in mourning. I couldn't change the timing of my visit, and unfortunately, about half the group of women were going to miss the training. We were all disappointed, but then last minute, we had the idea to film my visit so that when they were ready, the missing members of the community could watch my training, and it would also serve as an opportunity to refresh the information for the people that were present. My visits are about a week, and we cover a lot of information, from cherry selection to cleaning to fermentation protocols and drying, as well as cupping. Usually, if my clients want to remember something, they capture it with their phones. But this time, my client was able to hire a friend who is a filmmaker, so for a reasonable price, we would have professional quality audio, video, and pictures of my time there. We felt good about the plan. We left the city at 6 a.m. and started heading towards the coffee farms. If any green coffee buyers are listening, this will be a familiar story. Basically, a three-hour drive that turns into seven hours because of Latin traffic, poor roads, unexpected stops, and it's not a complete trip until at least one car breaks down. But finally, hours later, we made it to the site. The first day, the entire group gathered in one of the women's home. Their modest mill setup was basically in their living room. In fact, we arrived in time to eat a late lunch, and when we finished eating a delicious vegetable soup, we cleared our plates and had to move the tables and chairs we used out of the way so that we could set up their mill. When you visit a typical mid-sized coffee mill, there's a lot of specialized equipment. When you are processing large quantities of coffee, you want to invest in that equipment. But if you have only 100 trees, you can process your coffee with very minimal equipment in your home. These women had a coffee pulper, a piece of equipment that separates the cherry skin from the seed. The machine has a knuckle drum, and as it rotates, it presses the cherries against an iron face plate. This pressing action squeezes the seed from the cherry. Usually the drum is hooked up to a motor and requires electricity to run. In a very small scale, the drum can be hooked up to a crank and rotated manually. You can imagine it like a manual coffee grinder. And in small quantities, this works really great. I would say this farm handled a little bit more than a small amount, so they had the brilliant idea to hook it up to a bicycle. So it's much easier to pedal with both legs than to use the power of a single arm. This meant that it was small enough that two people could easily lift and move the pulper around, and no electricity was required, just strong hamstrings. The fermentation tanks were large plastic tubs, like something you would do laundry in, or perhaps bathe a golden retriever. While we had been driving, the women had picked the coffee. By the time we arrived, they were done. So they brought the coffee they had picked that morning, and we got straight to work. It was about one bag, roughly 70 kilograms of coffee. We used water from their kitchen to float the coffee, which can also be its own machine in large scale, but in the small scale, we simply filled the tub with water, dumped the cherries in, and stirred them around in the tub. The lighter ones float to the surface, and you can skim them with a common kitchen colander. We want to remove these because they are generally dried out and perhaps are lighter due to insect damage or poor development of the seeds. I watched them work how they normally do and interjected when I thought they could be doing things a little bit differently. Another rare but excellent advantage this group of women had is that they were learning to cup coffee. After we started the fermentation and finished that part of the processing, we had a coffee cupping. When I first started in coffee, I was surprised to learn that most coffee producers don't taste their own coffee. It's just not part of the protocol, especially at the scale of the small farm holders. 
it's only recently that there's been a focus on tasting their coffee, a focus on being able to connect the flavor in the cup to what they are doing when they harvest the cherries, or the flavor in the cup when they are floating and removing the rejects, or the flavor in the cup to when they're pulping and removing the skin, or the flavor in the cup when they're fermenting overnight or drying the cherries in raised beds. All of those steps impact the quality of the coffee, but traditionally, they would perform the steps without the feedback of the flavor consequences of those steps. Which, again, seems like basic quality control, but is so, so rare at this scale. Anyway, the next day, the whole group was going to gather at my client's mill, the larger mill where he processed his own coffee and the coffee of some neighbors. The focus of this second day was scale. They were going to see how we scaled the process from a plastic tub to a one-ton tank. For the trials, we needed 10 to 20 bags of coffee cherry. A different crew was supposed to be picking it that morning. Around midday, we took a trip to the farm because I wanted to review their picking practices since I missed them the day before. Our caravan of three vehicles rolled up to the farm, but we were surprised to find it empty, abandoned. At first, we thought we missed them, that they must have picked very quickly and they were done. But we couldn't see the bags, and looking around, not only did we not see people, but we still saw fruit on the trees. I encountered the scenario quite often. In the last six years, I can't tell you the number of times we plan and plan, and yet when I arrive, there is no coffee. A few years ago, I spent 30 hours on a plane to get to Rwanda, and we had to wait until the sixth day of my visit to start processing coffee. Another time, I flew to Brazil, 12 hours on a plane, and then six hours in the car, only to arrive at the mill and have one-tenth of the coffee we thought we would have. But anyway, back to this visit and no coffee. There were about 15 of us in three cars, so we got out, stretched our legs, walked around a bit, scratched our heads, and made some phone calls. Did the pickers go to the wrong farm? Were we on the wrong farm? No, there was no mistake. This was the right farm, on the right day, and they were told the right location. No cars had broken down. There was no error in communication. No transportation issue. They just weren't here. This was the first time I was lacking coffee due to a personnel issue. Every other time in the last six years when I showed up and there was no coffee, it was climate-related. Either too much rain at the wrong time, or too cold, or too hot, or something happened delaying the fruit, and my arrival was too early in the season, or the season was early and ripening was sped up, and my arrival was too late. Or the season had been going at a normal pace, but a random strong wind had knocked the flowers off the trees and dramatically reduced yields. Or a pest ate most of the crop. Or disease had wiped out most of the crop. There was always something, but it was usually nature that got in the way. This was the first time that it was people. It had not occurred to me until that moment how much I had taken the coffee picker for granted. I thought that as long as nature cooperated, the people would too that they would just be there, picking coffee, when we needed them. But they did not want to be there. It was then that we learned that the pickers had heard there was a camera involved, that they would be filmed, and they did not want to be filmed, and so they decided not to show up in protest. This was the first time I was lacking coffee due to a protest. They were frustrated by all of the previous times visitors came, took their picture, used their image, used their story, sold more coffee, but their lives remained unchanged. It seemed to them that everyone else was benefiting from their work and image besides themselves. The pickers were not making any more money, they were not compensated for their work, or their likeness, or their story. Clearly the people that came to visit were getting a benefit, 
They could use the images in their marketing and social media. They could use the images to differentiate their roasted product to their customers. And a differentiated product can be sold at a different price. But the people whose image was used to make this happen saw no compensation. Pickers will move around and work on many different farms in different countries, so this protest was not exclusively against my client, but they heard we had a camera and they decided to go work somewhere else. The irony is that the footage was not for commercial use. It was for training the community, to provide insights into how they could differentiate the coffee and improve quality so that they could be able to articulate why their coffee was different and therefore ask for better prices. The footage was not to help outsiders sell their coffee, it was to help them sell their own coffee for better prices, ones that could make a difference. It was not for marketing, but to provide information and training to the local community. And despite the lack of pickers and coffee, I still had to make that video for them. The pickers were not coming back, and it was midday, and we barely had one-tenth of what we needed for the trials. So everyone in the three cars put their stuff down, rolled up their sleeves, and got to picking. We had 15 people as part of the group, including the cameraman, his assistant, myself, my partner. Half the group had picked coffee before, but the other half of us were quite useless. We set about the work of trying to collect enough fruit so that we would have some work to do that afternoon at the mill. We were able to do this because this was my client's property. This is what we wish we could have done in the large mill I talked about in the previous episode. If the mill I had worked for would have owned any farms, me and the camera crew could have walked in, picked a basket of red fruit, and used cinematic skill to make it seem like much more. And then, I never would have had to dig further and learn how complicated the compensation system really was. Anyway, even though there were many of us, we were unskilled and slow, and despite our best efforts, we collected a very pathetic amount compared to what we were expecting to work with that day. If we wanted to get some fermentation done during daylight hours, we had to stop. So we took our small bounty and set back towards the mill in the afternoon. We floated by hand, pulped on their machine, and filled a few buckets instead of the large tanks we were expecting. We filmed what we could in miniature. Several weeks later, we tasted the results of the bucket and were blown away that it yielded an 87-point coffee, which, if you're unfamiliar with coffee scores, is a pretty good score and hard to get on accident. Unfortunately, we only had five pounds of that coffee, and very few people will ever get to taste it. Overall, it was a successful trip, and the protest only set us back one production day. However, I was struck with how I hadn't considered the power dynamic created when you use someone's image in this way. And honestly, I should have been much more sensitive to it, having had a similar experience. A few years ago, I did not thoroughly read a contract, and my image was used to sell coffee that I did not help create, and nor was I compensated for my image. I remember browsing the internet and stumbling across my picture, and I remember how uncomfortable it felt to see my own image being used to promote something that I had nothing to do with. The third and last story I will tell you about happened in El Salvador, a different country than the other two. In the first story, the mill and the farm were owned by completely different people. In the second, my client owned the mill and some farms, but also bought from neighbors. For this third client, the mill is about the same size as the second example, but all of the fruit processed at the mill is owned by my client, Don René. Don René's grandfather began planting coffee trees in 1919. He grew up on the farm, helping his father and grandfather with the business. Eventually, he went to university to study agronomy and travel the world while he was in the military. 
He has five siblings. Even though the family has been growing coffee since the 1920s, it wasn't until the 1990s that they built a mill to process their own coffee. Los seis entregábamos el café en este beneficio porque éramos tal vez no idénticos, pero sí bien parecidos. Teníamos la misma zona, las mismas variedades, el mismo manejo y la misma, diríamos, eh, proceso que se le daba al café y la comercialización lo hacíamos con, con compañías grandes que ya sabían de nuestro producto, nos daban un mejor precio, pero todos vendíamos los seis nuestro café también. He tells us that all six siblings had coffee with very similar conditions, grown on the same land, the same varieties, and would all process coffee roughly the same way in this mill that served the whole family. Todo empezó a cambiar por el 2013, cuando hubo un ataque fuerte de la roya aquí en el... Ya veníamos conviviendo con las plagas, con la broca y la roya, pero a partir de ese año la, la cepa de la broca cambió y nos destruyó completamente los, los cafetales. But that changed in 2013 when El Salvador experienced a strong fungal attack. It was not a new fungus, but they were not prepared for this particular strain of roya, and it spread rapidly and devastated the coffee crops throughout the country. Entonces, en una reunión familiar, los seis discutimos qué hacer porque el, los cafetales estaban destruidos. Entonces, este, de los seis, cinco de mis hermanos decidieron empezar a, a cultivar las variedades resistentes a la roya, a meter los híbridos. Yo tomé la decisión de seguir con las variedades tradicionales. Estamos hablando del borbón y el pacas. The siblings got together and discussed how to move forward because their farms were devastated. Five of the siblings decided to replant their farms with new disease-resistant hybrid varieties. Don René was the holdout. He kept his farm with the traditional varieties like Bourbon and Pacas. Porque a mí me gustaba la calidad y, y diríamos los antecedentes que ya habían, que esas variedades eran bien conocidas en el mercado internacional. En cambio, las híbridas nuevas como el Cuscatleco, el Costa Rica 95, el Empira, los Archimores, el Zampacho, todas estas variedades, no tenían mucho, eh, diríamos, mercado todavía porque no eran muy conocidas. He kept the traditional varieties mostly because he liked them and they were well known in the marketplace. He didn't think people would want to drink varieties they had never heard of, like Cocatleco, Costa Rica 95, Limpira, Sachimores, and Sampacho. Pero se dio el problema que ya cuando se reunían los cafeses en el beneficio, las variedades de Alcatalos no tenían una taza como las que yo tenía. Entonces empecé a tener problemas con mis hermanos porque yo les pedí a ellos que quería que, que se separara mi café. So they kept moving forward, each sibling cultivating their own land with their chosen varieties, but when it came to processing, just like before, all the coffees from the six siblings was mixed together. All his hard work cultivating the traditional varieties was blended away with the rest of the hybrid varieties, and the work he did in the field was not reflected in the cup quality. So he asked for his coffee to be handled separately from the rest of the siblings. As we saw in the previous episode, mills are most efficient when everything is treated the same. It's very difficult to create separate lots in a traditional mill. They lack flexibility and any new change is a challenge. Pero en la administración manejar aparte hubo problemas a tal punto de que 
ahí por el año de 2015, tomé la determinación de, de hacer mi propio esfuerzo. Eh, compré un beneficio ecológico. Treating his coffee separately was so great a challenge that he decided to break away. And instead of trying to process separately, he realized he needed his own facility if he was going to maintain the quality he was looking for. In 2015, he built his own mill and processed his coffee separately to preserve the uniqueness of his varieties. So Don René owns all of the farms and built a mill on his property. This is the highest level of control of any of the previous scenarios. You'd think he would have the opportunity to produce the highest quality coffee because he controls more of the supply chain. He is not in debt to the exporter, he doesn't have to deal with the politics of neighboring farmers or share a processing facility. He doesn't buy fruit from his neighbors and he doesn't sell his fruit to anyone else. He is doing very well, but there still remains another large hurdle. The pickers. To break away from his family's commodity coffee, he knew he wanted to grow different varieties, and he knew he needed to process his coffee in different ways. He also knew that for maximum coffee quality, he needed to start with ripe fruit. All the best equipment and protocols and marketing can't make up for starting with diseased, overripe, or underripe coffee cherries. When coffee was first introduced to El Salvador, the goal was to produce volume. Like I mentioned before in episode 15, the differentiation and quality was thought to come exclusively from roasting, so the main objective was to grow and pick as much coffee as possible. The farmers were paid on weight, not what the coffee tasted like. This created a culture of picking that also relied on volume. Quantity was rewarded, quality was not. Tradicionalmente se ha cortado, la persona corta, echa su café al canasto y va el sobre maduro, va el maduro, va el istulte o falto, va el verde, va el seco, y así lo entrega, así lo entrega. Entonces, Una de las primeras enseñanzas que nosotros tuvimos era para mejorar la calidad del café era que teníamos que separar. The traditional way to pick is to take whatever comes off the tree. The ripe, the underripe, overripe, everything goes into the bag and that's how it's delivered to the mill. Don René knew that he had to change this behavior if he was going to maximize his results. He knew selective picking was the way forward, but getting the pickers to change their ways was a battle. Pickers want to pick as much as they can, so they pick everything in front of them. Even though it's known that green cherries are lower quality, a picker is not going to waste her time taking them out of her sack because if she's spending time selecting out the green cherries, she's reducing her final weight, and also time sorting is time lost not picking more cherries. So selective picking can work against a picker in two ways. This dynamic puts the picker in direct opposition to the specialty coffee producer. For a commercial coffee producer, this is not a problem. They still operate on volume and quantity. But for the specialty coffee producer that is trying to up-level quality and get out of selling coffee as a commodity, he needs to start with selected cherries. This is one of the biggest mistakes I see. Many producers are trying to make specialty coffee, but they are starting with commodity quality cherries. We try to modify as best we can after the fact but it's more difficult to correct issues later. I have yet to be on a farm that by default picks only red ripe cherries. It has to be an intentional decision and compensated very well. While I have seen several farms in El Salvador who are able to manage this on a small scale, it can be very difficult for many producers to find enough pickers to do this work. Don René tried to incentivize the pickers by offering more money for selective picking. 
He would still pay them for all the cherries they picked, but he wanted them to arrive sorted. So instead of one bag where all of the qualities were mixed together, he provides four times the amount of bags so all of the green can go into one, all of the underripe into another, all of the ripe into its own bag, and all of the overripe coffee into a fourth bag. He knew he was asking for more effort, so he also tried to show them they could make more money if they stayed with him and picked ripe. For a mixed lot, he would pay $1.25, but if it was selected, he would pay about $2. So they could earn almost twice the rate if they slowed down a little bit. But very few were convinced. He thought perhaps it was a math issue. The calculations involved in picking eight arrobas at $1.25 versus six arrobas at $2 over eight hours per day, over several weeks, and so forth, and then projecting into the future of how much money could be made at the end of a week, or at the end of two weeks, or at the end of a month, that type of math can be difficult for many pickers if they haven't had access to education. So then he tried another more visual tactic with much less math. Se le demostró, por ejemplo, una libra de café rojo, maduro, ¿verdad? tenía 400 perdón, 320 granos. Granos, granos. Granos, granos. Después se puso una libra de café falto estulte, llegaba a 390 granos. Y después les pusieron una de verde y llegó a 520 granos. Entonces le dijo, el, mira, Leo, el esfuerzo que hiciste tú en cortar este café, lo que yo estoy perdiendo porque estoy, me estás cortando el café, que si fuera maduro, casi saco dos libras, ¿sí? y yo te hubiera pagado dos libras a ti. En este clip, Don René is explaining that they took one pound of green cherries, one pound of underripe, which are pinkish yellow, and one pound of red cherries. All three levels of ripeness weighed one pound, but when they counted the number of cherries in each pound, in the green it was 520 cherries, the underripe was 390, and the ripe was 320. The goal was to show that if they picked green, they were handling and picking 520 individual cherries when they could be collecting 320 if they were red. Picking green in this case takes more work, not less, because it takes so many more individual cherries to get to the weight of the ripe one. You have to pick two underripe cherries to make up the weight of one ripe one. So picking green is almost twice the amount of work, and you would get paid half as much. Eso nos ha dado también un, un problema, que la gente, la resistencia al cambio. Aunque les cancelemos o les demos una, un premio por, por cortar así, la gente dice, no, mejor me voy a otra finca donde voy a, me van a pagar menos, pero voy a cortar yo como yo quiera. Entonces, en cambio aquí, los que nos han quedado, ya saben que aquí se corta uva, que cortan menos, pero que ganan un poco más. But the resistance to change is strong. In this clip, Don René is explaining the difficulty of making this plan stick and how he's lost a lot of workers because they could find work at other farms where they could pick coffee like they wanted to, like they were used to. The workers that stayed understand that they pick less volume, but they earn more for it. However, not as many pickers take this option when presented with it. Next, we'll hear from Herman, Don René's son-in-law, as he illustrates another problem with selective picking. 
de la mayoría de nuestros vecinos anda por, por decir un mes. Cuando nosotros nos tardamos cuatro meses. Entonces el periodo de corte por hacer selección es mucho más largo. Eso, pero eso no lo terminan de entender. Uh -huh. Pickers need to move around to various farms because the work is seasonal and limited. However, by picking in the traditional fashion, most of Don René's neighbors have a harvest that lasts approximately one month, and then the pickers need to move on and find more work. Hedman says that due to selective picking on their farm, they can extend the harvest to four months because they can do multiple passes. This means that the farmers who choose to not selectively pick are also reducing their own profit. The other unfortunate part is that the green unripe cherries are sold for so much less, whereas if they had been left on the tree, they could ripen and they would need to be picked again in a few weeks. This both ensures more work for the pickers, but also more profit for the producer because ripe cherry can be sold for more than green cherries. But the tradition is strong and change is difficult, and many pickers prefer to work on farms that have less stringent requirements. So the farmer can either lose workers or have to accept the lower quality. Mechanization is still not an option on many farms for various reasons, but I think it will be a key to alleviate some of this tension. My hope in sharing these stories is to show how complex and far-reaching the problem is. Coffee pickers are a vulnerable part of the supply chain and a key to quality. I've noticed how often we talk about improving quality by altering brewing technique, or by adjusting a roast curve, or by drying slower on raised beds instead of in a machine, or by fermenting for long hours with selected yeasts. And if we do mention improving quality by selective picking, we rarely realize how culturally difficult it can be, and that more money is not incentive enough. As I mentioned before, with the pickers who protested, we need to be more cognizant that perhaps in an attempt to bring awareness to the labor problem, we may inadvertently be marginalizing them in a different way. I'm not suggesting that you hand someone a dollar when you take their picture, but we could start by asking for their permission to take their picture and then consider how we are going to use the image. Like I mentioned in the last episode, even when you want to pay more for quality and compensate for more work, the culture and institutions can make that difficult. I think we need to be aware when we're using other stories for our benefit or noticing when we are telling other people's stories for them. In this episode, I tried to let Don René tell as much of his story as I could with the language barrier. If you want to hear the full conversation with him, it's available on Patreon, along with additional supplementary material like the video of the bicycle-powered pulper. Sitting down to collect these interactions is possible through the support of Patreon. These episodes are not sponsored or supported through advertisements. It's completely listener-supported. I'm grateful for the 40 individuals who currently support this podcast, and it's through their generosity that I can make it available to you all. To support this free podcast, please visit patreon.com slash makingcoffee. If you enjoy these episodes and want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's lucia, L-U-X-I-A, dot coffee. Thanks for joining me, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.